Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind the success. Today we meet James Thornton, founder of Mayfair Capital and now its non-executive chair. James began his career at Jones Lang Wooten, now JLL, where he spent 15 happy years in increasingly senior roles before being headhunted by Savills to lead their fund management practice. Having developed a taste for running a business after six years with Savills, James took the leap, partnering with his former JLW colleague, Guy Brogdon, to launch Mayfair Capital. Since then, the business has grown from strength to strength, raising and investing hundreds of millions of pounds of capital from private and institutional investors and sealing a deal with Swiss Life in 2016 to become part of one of the largest real estate managers in Europe. James was CEO of Mayfair from 2014 until 2020, when he became chairman. He still keeps a close eye on the business, particularly on Mayfair's charity fund, which holds a special place in his heart. Born and raised in Yorkshire, James was more likely to be found on the sports pitches than doing his coursework, but a stern phone call from his university tutor sparked a change in attitude, and he eventually graduated with a glittering first from Nottingham Trent University. Known for his unflappable attitude and unwavering diligence when approaching investment, listeners may be surprised to hear that James is actually a softie at heart, whether it's getting emotional over the ending of the railway children or becoming prey to that infamous sporting heartbreaker, golf. Well, James, we can but hope that there'll be no bunker shots today. Without further ado, let's tee off. James Thornton, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you, Emily. I've talked to others who have done this and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. I hope we can live up to that. This podcast is all about the defining moments in people's careers. Tell me more about that phone call with your tutor. What were you like before and, and how did the call change you? The call from the tutor wasn't quite as you described, actually. It was, um, it was the end of the second year and I've, you know, Educationally, I sort of was very much middle of the road, wasn't terribly motivated. But by the end of the second year at Nottingham, um, I got a call from Neil Crosby, who's now a very eminent uh, property academic, and said, James, you actually did very well in the second year exams. If you work really hard, you can probably get a first. And for me, that was like um, turning a switch on, really, because I was highly motivated to achieve that, which obviously I went on to do. Well, indeed, I think it did hit home for you. The person who told us that story is, of course, Chris Radford, your university friend and partner in crime at Jones Lang, now running his own consultancy. And he shared how you developed a certain reputation whilst at Nottingham Trent. Let's have a listen. James did phenomenally well at Trent. He was uh, one of two firsts and uh, deserved it, very much deserved it. In fact, his nickname was Notes because he was so um, diligent if any of us missed a lecture, James was always the first port of call and he was always extremely helpful. Notes. I hope you charged for the notes. I didn't, but I should have done. How has this attention to detail helped you stand out over the years? Uh, well, I think as a personality, I, I like to make decisions based on the facts and how I analyse those facts. Um, and that sort of applies in all walks of life. Just occasionally you do make a decision based on 
gut instinct and you do do that from time to time. But I think an analytical approach and a balanced approach is where I've really come from. Well, this diligence seems to be a skill you've carried with you throughout your career. Chris also shared a more recent anecdote of your approach as a fellow board member of Ptarmigan Land. When James sits on a board now, he's got a wealth of experience from, you know, the professional side, from the uh, entrepreneurial side. Frankly, he knows where the, the minds are and he asks the right questions and he's quite probing. He knows the answers to the questions before he asks them, but he wants to check them, make sure that the senior managers know the answers too. So frankly, a great addition to any board, I would say. Since 2020, you've moved into a non-exec role within Mayfair Capital too. How do you balance applying the right pressure on the board and having impact on decision making without, of course, stepping on people's toes? Well, I think the first part of that question is to say that I am non-executive, so I'm not involved in the day-to-day decision-making of Mayfair Capital anymore. Mm. And I was very conscious as I stepped down that I needed to leave the new leadership team to its own devices whilst being available to consult on, on any subject. And, you know, I think in defining my new role, I really sort of picked out of the old role what I enjoyed most. So I'm sitting on the Investment Risk Committee. I'm involved in new business. Obviously, I've continued to be involved in our charity fund. And I do, and I do the remuneration committee, but I, I very much handed over the executive responsibility and really letting the team get on it, on with it, albeit I'm a, hopefully a valuable link between the team in Zurich and the new management team in London. And how difficult a transition was it, given this was your baby, this was your business? Um, not as difficult as you might think, actually. Mm. Um, managing the business through COVID was, was tough last year, actually. I did more more hours at home than I have ever worked in a year before, I think. Mm. And I always thought that five years on from the sale of the business, that it would be right to hand over and the business needed a fresh approach to management. Well, let's take a step back 20 years to the early days of Mayfair Capital. You just spent six successful years leading Savile's fund management arm before deciding to set up your own business. We spoke to Nick Shepherd, former partner, board member, vice chairman at Deloitte and non-executive board member for several property trusts and businesses, including Mayfair's own income trust for charities, Pitch. Here's Nick setting the scene. James clearly had a very successful year at uh, Jones Lang LaSalle, moved to Savills and had a very secure career there as well. And to drop that and move from advisor to principal is a very significant uh, move and definitely is and was a significant personal risk undertaken by James. Um, And I have every admiration for him for having taken that move and made that decision. Why did it feel like the right time from a market perspective, from a personal perspective? I think that... The collapse in equity prices as part of the dot-com boom Mm. made investors realise that there was more to life than investing in bonds and equities, which had served so well through the 1990s. So I think the emergence of property as an asset class, alongside other alternatives, was a real opportunity. And what Guy and I set out to do was to offer private investors an institutional-style approach to managing their money 
at a time when there were very few alternatives. You know, you could have gone into a Tritax or a Pindafari Benjamin single building offering, which would be highly leveraged, where the fees were really quite high based on the leverage as well. But we were more about risk and diversification and, and providing a, a steady return. And we just saw a gap in the market. The move from advisory side to principal investment is often contemplated. What advice would you offer to those wanting to make that transition? Well, I would certainly say if you have an idea and utter confidence in it, go and do it because it's an amazing feeling to have taken a risk and, and hopefully to have seen the rewards of that on the, on the other side. I mean, you know, our early time at Mayfair, we took a thousand feet in Bruton Street. It was Guy, myself and a PA called Georgina and three desks. Um, yes, we had started work on creating two limited partnerships. We planned to earn nothing for six months. That turned into 12, which, you know, I have four children. Guy has three children. That was, you know, it was quite a tough time, actually. But I don't think we ever wavered from the belief that we could make it a success. Albeit when we did launch the funds, they were uh, really quite small and we had completely underestimated how easy it would be to raise equity. The idea of the three of you hustling, yeah. worrying about putting, frankly, food on the table is quite an image. Mm. And so the belief and just the work ethic, what else gets you through a time like that? Well, I think when you, when you start to make progress, you get more enthused and more energetic about it. Mm. I, I mean, I don't think we for one moment thought we would fail, actually, even though we could have done it any time. Um, but we had good backing from, actually, you know, if you look at our early investors, quite a few people in the property industry backed us, um, which, was, which was very good of them. You never forget that early support. No. You never forget no. the people who were there no, at the beginning. absolutely. Mm. Absolutely right. Mm. James, what did you learn from your advisory days at JLW and Savills that equipped you for setting up Mayfair? Well, I think the first thing to say is I don't think I could have done Mayfair without both those experiences. The, the JLW that I joined in 1991 was the firm that everybody wanted to join. It was totally client-facing. It was a great place to work, and it really taught me the fundamentals of property investing and I was I was lucky enough to work with some really talented people when I was there including Chris Bartram who came in to start up the fund management business. Big contrast when I moved to Savills, very different approach. So you arrive and here's your profit and loss account James, here's your team, this is your projection for the next 12 months, this is your cost base. If you do X then your bonus pool will be Y and it was quite a sharp wake up call in business actually. So any decisions you wanted to make about growing the business, you looked at what the impact would be on our own P&L. And, and I think that's why I say I couldn't have done Mayfair Capital without doing both those things. As the business grew beyond those early stages of the three of you in that office, what were the challenges, the other challenges that you faced? Primarily external challenges. We had two Gulf Wars. And then, of course, the financial crisis, which I, I talked about a little earlier. Those conditions made raising equity very, very challenging. And I've described what we did with the early growth fund. But once we'd, we'd come through that and we were primarily income focused, so provided our tenants were paying the rent, our investors stayed with us. And that was certainly the case in the charity fund. And then as things began to stabilize, we 
had the very good fortune to recruit Robert Palmer, who was just leaving or had left Rock Spring. And Schroeder's uh, had asked him to run a UK balanced unit trust as a partnership fund. Robert didn't want to create his own business to do that and, and approached Guy and I. And we both knew him. Well, I knew him personally as well as in business. And that was a really straightforward decision to bring Robert into the business. And I, I would say that was a catalyst for us growing much more quickly because other mandates came through after that, including Jupiter and, and other things. After 14 years of building a successful boutique business, you made the decision to take the business even further, selling 100% of the company shares to Swiss Life. We spoke to William Hill, former chairman of Mayfair Capital and former head of property at Schroders, who offered his thoughts on this time. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge challenge, you know, from having your own business, taking a lot of risks, setting it up. He ran it like a family business in a sense. He's a very good manager of, of people. Everyone liked him. And so for him to move from that to effectively owned by a, a third party, it, it would have been a, a very emotional process for him. But he dealt with it extremely well. And I think also credit to Swiss Life because they recognised that process and they gave us an awful lot of space. And sometimes when, when I think you buy a business, you know, you don't always keep the chief executive and I think it's absolutely stand out for James that not only was that the case but he established a really strong relationship with the um, CIO of the investment team at Swiss Life so I, I think that speaks volumes again of of James's judgment and integrity and and trustworthiness kind words and he didn't pay him <laughs> <laughs> he just offered up those kind words but it is true I think there's a lot of uh, a lot to be said for the fact that Swiss Life were very keen to keep you on and uh, saw the huge value and importance of that. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, it was you know a little bit of the story on how we came to be owned by Swiss Life, if, if, yeah. if you would like me to. We didn't set out to sell all the business. We knew that as a small boutique that we needed to grow more quickly. None of us were getting any younger and we needed access to capital to do that. So... Um, William and the rest of the board and the bigger shareholders came together and we decided that we would appoint a corporate financier to find a strategic partner for us, somebody who could make capital available for us and might want to own 40 or 45% of us. We put together the long list of parties that we thought would be suitable bedfellows um, and then back to William, he went to purely chance meeting at UK MIPIM. He met somebody from Swiss Life's French business who said we're looking for presence in the UK. And from that conversation, Swiss Life entered the process. We went to Zurich, we met the team, and I think we recognised very quickly that they were going to be very compatible partners and owners of the business if we went down that route. They have property absolutely in their DNA, they're long-term thinkers, and even in you know the timing of the deal, which was we were just agreeing terms around June 2016, just as the Brexit vote was perhaps going the way that people didn't expect. You know, there was a little pause in the negotiations, but the team came to London and said, we want to do this. We are long-term investors. And, and I suppose part of my motivation for still being there five years on is that I'm very proud of the role that Mayfair Capital performs within Swiss Life. I think we've led on ESG and uh, our thematic investment approach. 
but at around 5% of assets under management, Mayfair needs to be bigger. And I'm very committed to delivering that success as well. A huge part of building a business isn't just taking risks on people, but people taking a risk on you. We spoke to Susanna Fryer, investment manager at Merseyside Pension Fund and a member of RF Investor Committee, who shared why she felt you were a good bet. One of the reasons, obviously, as you say, is his track record. Uh, And obviously we knew him well and his approach to real estate. And I think that's very important um, because certainly because we knew him uh, and was comfortable at that point in time, uh, we didn't see any reason why we couldn't invest in him. I mean, if he is a new manager that we didn't have any um, experience with, then obviously that's a different matter. But we had all that experience through Merseyside Pension Fund and him running the fund uh, and managing, you know, for us or advising us um, of our portfolio that we felt comfortable that we were able to put our money uh, with him in his new venture. It wasn't his first fund that we put money into, but certainly into the second funds and, 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 the, and the remaining ones at the same time. We have enjoyed a really good relationship with Merseyside. Um, fairly extraordinary, actually, that, you know, I was on holiday in 1998 in Solcombe and we got the call from Savills that we'd been shortlisted for the Merseyside role. So the weather that year was absolutely shocking. It got me out of my wayfarer where I was having sailing lessons with the children. So I had a seven-hour journey to Liverpool and back, and, and we won that mandate. And that was, for Mayfair Capital, that was a big moment as well, actually, because we did develop the confidence. And really, I mean, Susanna and her colleague, Simon Edwards, were absolutely excellent investors. I mean, I, I learned a lot from them, actually. So when our second fund came along, as Susanna says, you know, they, they made an, a, a good investment with us. And we've done a lot of other things with them, whether it's investing in residential mezzanine debt. We advised them into a unit trust at a big discount. Susanna has always been open to good ideas. And I'm pleased to say that we have pretty much delivered the returns that she expected. And what is the secret to building and maintaining these great relationships with investors? Well, I think it is it is about trust. And I think one of the things that I learned very early on in Mayfair Capital was how precious equity is in any transaction. Going back to our first two funds, we were not as highly leveraged as the rest of the market, but our growth fund had leverage of 70%. You don't borrow lightly. And I mean, if I'll, I'll go on and just say that our very first fund was supposed to be a five to seven year life fund. We did some really good transactions. And Going into that 06, 07 period ahead of the financial crash, when property yields dropped below gilt yields, Guy and I looked at each other, looked at the model, played with it, and concluded that actually the very best thing for our investors was to sell early. And we did that. We delivered a sort of high, high teens IRR, more than double the client's equity. And that was a big decision for us because we had a 1% fee, which went to zero quite quickly. Okay, we had a bit of a performance fee to carry us through, but we just did the right thing by the investor. And I think the moment you put self-interest before investor interest, I think you're in deep trouble. We've most certainly been in the proverbial rough these past two years with the global COVID pandemic. How have you worked to maintain strong relationships with investors during periods of, of crisis? Well, I think it, it's all about communication. You know, in our in our charity fund, we have thirteen hundred investors. 
we held regular webinars and reported openly and honestly about about what was going on. And actually, there was a good story because our rent collection was good. We didn't have redemptions. I think we just reassured in a very honest and straightforward way. And our other client mandates are more focused on a certain number, you know, short, smaller number of people. So it was easier to report to them, which we were doing on a quarterly basis anyway. And how can you protect a business to weather such dramatic market changes? Can you indeed? Well, I think the protection is probably already in the way you've constructed the portfolio with with hindsight. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody saw a COVID coming that would really decimate the the retail and hospitality sectors. But as a business and adopting our thematic investment approach, we were already ahead of the game in terms of our themes and how we were allocating capital. So we had a very low weight. We had no shopping centres, very, very little retail exposure. So, and that applied across all our funds, Mm. long industrial logistics exposure. So, you know, we came through it in a very strong and robust way. Yes, we had to reduce the distributions to our charity investors, and that's hard because they were really hit hard last year with the suspension of dividends and, and so forth. But our yield didn't drop that much. We knew how much pain they were taking because some of them were having to use capital to carry on funding their charitable objectives. You know, there's a very close recognition of how important our income is to those charities. Your reputation for digging into the details has been a common theme during our calls with those closest to you. But we did our due diligence too and came across one person who has seen you break this mould. We spoke to your daughter, Amelia Thornton. I I see you (laughs) grimace with worry of what's put to come. Amelia is an associate portfolio manager at Casino Capital and she shared a time when you took a risk based on your gut instinct rather than your notes. He once invested personally in a fund management startup in the Northwest. And I know he did well out of it, but he said, I think when he was telling me, he simply backed the judgment and ambition of the CEO and didn't spend too much time on analysing papers or, you know, the fundamentals. He just backed his gut instinct. So I'm sure that that must have been a bit of a risk. It was a big risk, <laughs> but but it paid off. It was actually Susanna Fry's boss who I'd got to know during that period at Savills and on our quarterly meetings in Liverpool, it didn't matter what the market was doing. Simon and Susanna were outperforming in good and bad markets. And when Simon decided to set up his own business, he came to me one day and said, James, it's not going quite as well as I thought it was to start with. Would you like to put some money in? And I said, yes. And actually, I didn't read anything. Crikey. And he sold that business only five years later, having been a huge success. So gut instinct worked. Gut instinct helps as well. Absolutely worked. We're often told not to make business emotional, but we find, and especially in our line of of work, it is the human touch that makes the difference. Tell us about your charity endeavours and Mayfair's groundbreaking pitch fund. Yeah, I think, well, my my involvement in property and charity investment goes back to Savills, actually, because I was one of three parties that founded the charities property fund when I was there. This was back in the year 2000. Um, it was a bursa from Oxford, a fund manager in the city now in Bestech and Savills. And the idea came together and we, we went off and launched it. And when I started Mayfair Capital, I realized that this charity sector was big enough to accommodate another fund. It had to be different. So we structured it in a different legal entity 
Um, we still have the stamp duty exemption. We could accept charities in Scotland and Northern Ireland, and we could use a little bit of leverage at a very modest level. So it was a very logical next step for Guy and I, having done the two private investor funds. Again, as with Savills, I mean, they started with 15 million. We started with six or seven, I think. But there was a good following eventually. Well, Nick, Nick Shepherd oh. spoke mm. about the challenges you faced in the early days of setting up that fund. Let's have a listen. I was managing partner of a business uh, called Drivers Jonas, and James had just started the uh, property and contrast for charities. The early stage was up to, I don't know, 30, 40 million pounds invested in the fund, very, very small in fund terms. And getting up to 100 million was the first challenge. And it was painfully slow. Charities, by their very nature, are hesitant, reluctant, cautious. And getting folk to commit funds to the charity in, that, in those early days was really, really tricky. But once we got the fund to 100 million, it took off. And it's a major player in the market and has performed for all the charities that are invested in the fund, it's performed fantastically well. Since then, you've raised over £600 million for this fund. Tell us about that, that journey, that experience. Very rewarding. I mean, the first thing is you've, you've got to deliver on your investment objective and a relatively high, you know, at one point we were yielding more than 6%. And for a charity, that's really quite an attractive proposition. But yes, you've got to look after the capital value as well because nobody wants to see loss of real value. But I think the bigger it became, the easier it was to raise money. You suddenly get on the radar of the investment consultants. And rather than fund managers backing it, which are our big investors as well, suddenly, you know, there were investors there with 20, 30 million who were willing to back the fund. And the great thing about the charity sector is they are all very long-term investors. Did the concept exist, this charity fund? Was it something that you and colleagues launched. It feels like a groundbreaking uh, well, initiative. I think, well, I think it probably was. I mean, Guy and I must take the credit for that. Um, we needed special HMRC dispensation to create a unit trust with stamp exemption. The Savills Fund had actually been a common investment fund, which had taken a long time to set up um, because the Charity Commission were not familiar with property and asked a lot of questions. But this was a quick route to market for us. And the fact that we had the stamp exemption that was as good as it, it got really for us. So we were able to launch it quite quickly and we are differentiated from that main competitor fund. Well, we'll speak later about legacy, but I think mm. certainly this part goes into the bag of legacy uh, tricks that you've accumulated. Listeners may have thought that having a successful real estate career spanning 35 years requires you to be a tough nut. But you've proven that caring and giving back can still bring about returns. We couldn't round up the podcast without sharing this. We hear again from Amelia, your daughter, on being a softie at heart. Oh, he's going to hate me for the same this, but he can actually get quite emotional on simple things. Films, I mean, the last scene of the railway children, I mean, <laughs> film, sport. Um, he's very passionate. I'm sure he talked about uh, Leeds United. And, and and even if it's a good golf shot, you know, if it's supporting England, cricket, football, rugby, he can suddenly, he can just suddenly get a bit choked. And it's, <laughs> it's just very sweet. I mean, he never, you know, he, he never actually 
cries or anything, but just, oh, it's just funny how he can't, he's very, yeah, he's, he's quite emotional. It's true. Thank you for that, Amelia. <laughs> so, yep. Johnny Wilkinson in the last oh, seconds, was that a don't, tearjerker? Don't, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want some dishes? <laughs> That's wonderful. As with all our guests, we are going to be marooning you on this desert island, as well as having ample time to work on those bunker shots. What will you miss most about the real estate world? Uh, definitely the people. I think our industry is, it's a fabulous place to work. And despite the increasing digitalization and so forth, it still relies on personal relationships. And, um, and I think it always will. You can't, you can't take that out of the industry. And, you know, I think we've all made great friendships and had a lot of fun along the way. COVID, of course, where we've been apart has proven that point yeah. too, is just how, how social we are, how we need our our tribe of yep. real estate uh, friends and colleagues. When you come back from this imposed isolation on your desert island, which market do you think will have evolved the most over the next six to 12 months? Where are we going to see greatest change? Uh, I think the pace of change at the moment is is, is very rapid. Mm. COVID has brought on the the life science sector is suddenly, suddenly enormous. Um, we've got new REITs being launched. Logistics continues to carry on. You might say the yields are getting unsustainable, and they probably are, but there's huge occupational demand coming behind it. So mm-hmm. that probably has still got a lot of legs in it. Fun enough, I think that retail, I think there's a bit more interest in shopping centers in repositioning. Um, I don't think you buy shopping centers for their performance prospects at the moment. The wheel is turning there as the capital comes back with a bit more risk appetite for town center placemaking and so forth. Before we leave you to enjoy that winter sun on your desert island, we wanted to share a few final words from William Hill, the former chairman of Mayfair, who who shared his view on the legacy you've created. I think I would struggle to find a nicer person than James. You know, he he has always got time for people. He's a great listener. He never gets flustered. He's just a lovely, lovely guy to 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 work for and be be loyal to. You know, if you follow James is his approach, you're not going to go wrong. He's just a really super guy and people want to be loyal to him and work for him. And, and I think in a small business, that's really, really important. You know, he, he cares passionately for all the people that he employs and, 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 and works with. Sometimes there's a sort of adage, isn't it, that nice guys don't win. But James has won and he has proved that you can be a nice guy and win at the same time. Could we have been more aggressive and more cutthroat? Possibly. Would it have been a nice place to work in? Almost certainly not. You know, what's important in life? How do you measure really what success is? And and I think more and more people are starting to think that success is not just about how much money is in the bank account. It's also about how happy you are, how you enjoy what you're doing. And it's not just about driving everyone to the final point and and then spit them out and start again with someone else. That's not James. He's always done a lot, you know, with charity. He's a very, very generous guy. And that that, you know, I think is is how you measure the success of the business as, as, as much as how much is in the bank. Yeah. Well, those are very, very kind words indeed. We were delighted to have William as part of our team for a number of years. And you know, I'm very proud of the, the team, the team that we have. Um, we've never had any issues recruiting at Mayfair Capital, apart from where we've needed your help in specialist areas. 
our staff turnover has been very low. And I, I think we have engendered a really special team spirit. And I think people coming enjoy coming to work at Mayfair Capital. It's a stimulating place. There's always something new going on. There's always somebody trying to do something new. And, you know, they deserve to be backed. It's listening to what William says about how maybe one could have been, the business could have been sharper edged or more aggressive given real estate. It's such a relationship business and such a long term business. I wonder your perspective on why not bringing that aggressive approach, why it works and whether you agree with William. I do agree with William. I think fund management ultimately is about long term relationships. And I suppose the the people that you hire to service those relationships, by definition, may not be the most aggressive. Yes, the transactional teams have to have a hard edge to them because it's it's tough dealing with agents. Mm. But that's the strength of a team. You've got to understand what whatever his strengths and weaknesses are, how well matched they are to their job description. It is a team approach at the end of the day. And culture and people is is what sets you yes. apart. Yeah, and you can't put your finger on what that culture is. It just comes out of what you've got, I think. Mm. Well, usually I'd say more here, but I think William has said it mm. all. Nice guys do win. James Thornton, or should I say notes, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Emily. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bohill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bohill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bohillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.